listening to the Vineyard Church's UK and Ireland podcast. The following audio was taken from the Cause to Live For 2022, our annual event for students' 20s and 30s. How's things, everyone? This is the graveyard shift, isn't it? It's like when you just had a big lunch, feeling snoozy, not had enough daylight. Um, But if anyone falls asleep, could any of those around them just stand up and just point at them so that we can do some public shaming as a a great motivation for keeping people awake. I'm obviously joking. Um, Great, great to be with everyone. I'm going to share a little bit about discipleship. I'm loving the screens. Like to have that kind of size screen behind is an absolute gift, particularly when you preach so much with slides. This is my love language right here. So I'm going to be talking about practicing the way of Jesus, discipleship in our cultural moment. Just put your hands in the air if you've sort of like connected with any of John Mark Comer's teaching, any of his writings. Okay, this is a poor man's version of some of his stuff. So if any of this intrigues you, you want to find out more, um, then I'd encourage you to sort of listen to some of his teaching. He's just set up a new um, ministry called Practicing the Way, and I'm sure you could engage with, with some of the content there. So I basically want to use a framework that he uses to talk about, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about following the way of Jesus or practicing the way of Jesus, what do we really mean? And he came up with this very simple framework that when we talk about practicing the way of Jesus, we mean three things. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing the stuff that Jesus did. So being with Jesus... Number one. Number two, becoming like him, character formation, spiritual formation. And number three, doing the stuff that he did. That's one of the statements of the Vineyard Movement. Doing the stuff, like participating in the ministry of Jesus. Um, That's what we want to give ourselves towards. So listen to these words. This is Mark chapter three. For the three of you that bought your Bibles, you might want to get them out. Otherwise, you can turn your Bible on and go to Mark chapter three. This is Jesus engaging with the, the first disciples. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, and here's the key phrase, that they might be with him. Now we tend to sort of skip over that bit and fast forward to that he would send them out to preach, have authority over demons, like being engaged in the naturally supernatural stuff. But really the emphasis, the highest calling, our first pursuit is to be with Jesus. Time in his presence is what forms us, changes us, transforms us, which is why developing a practice for being with Jesus is critical. We're going to talk about spiritual practices in a moment. But whether that's like a morning routine of a bit of time in prayer, a bit of time in scripture, or a moment in the afternoon or before you go to bed, having these moments where it's not just part of a to-do list, it's a moment of stillness, of welcoming the presence of Jesus. That is critical to thriving as a follower of Jesus. Now, there's, there's a theologian called Sam Wells, um, and he's written a course, a discipleship course called Being With. And I, I quite like this framework. He basically says, look, you could break down the ministry of Jesus into three chunks. Um, you've got the week that he spent in Jerusalem. That's the journey towards the cross. You've got the three years he spent in Galilee. That's the kind of like post-baptism, his ministry. And then you've got the 30 years of his upbringing that we know far less about time in now. 
Nazareth. So 30 years in Nazareth, three years Galilee, one week in Jerusalem. Um, And this is perhaps a bit simplistic, but hopefully helpful. Samuel says, look, for one week, Jesus is is working for our salvation. That's the the Passion Week, the, the week to the cross, the week of the resurrection. For three years, he's working with his disciples, um, equipping them to do the stuff of the ministry. But for 30 years, he's being with, being with. This is the message that we're going to celebrate at Christmas. Anyone excited about the, the festive season being upon us? Okay, mixed reaction, I was hoping for more. Um, It's the best time of the year, I absolutely love it. It's where we celebrate the the incarnation, God taking on human flesh to live amongst us. Incarne is a Greek word uh, meaning in flesh. Chili con carne, chili in meat. God con carne um, is, is God in human flesh. Um, God draws close to us. It's incredible. We should never get bored of this emphasis in the Christmas story that God would choose to dwell amongst us, to draw close to us, to be with us. If the deep desire of God is to be with us, our reciprocal desire is that, Lord, we want to be with you want to be with you. Discipleship begins with this emphasis on being with. Secondly, this journey towards character formation, becoming Christ-like, becoming like Christ in terms of character. So listen to these words, apt for the moment we're living in. Are you tired? Tick. Worn out? Yes. Burned out on religion? Absolutely. Jesus says, come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. This is the message translation, by the way, the Eugene Peterson translation. Jesus says, I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Notice that language, watch how I do it. This is like, imitate me. Observe how I do life. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus is basically saying, I want you to look at how I go about life. In the NIV or the the more traditional translations, he talks about my yoke being easy, my burden is light. In other words, if you do life as I've created you to do life, it shouldn't feel exhausting. It shouldn't lead to chronic burnout. If it is leading to constant exhaustion and burnout, maybe you've got the wrong practices. Like there should be an ease to it. Yes, it will be costly. Yes, there'll be massive sacrifice, but there should be an ease to it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. In other words, be with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now, when we talk about character formation, can I just sort of expose how the church... Um, has been operating and I think we're beginning to experience some shifts which I think are exciting but when I grew up the the standard like operating manual if you like for discipleship basically said and it massively bought into enlightenment thinking that we're fundamentally rational beings Descartes said cogito ergo sum I think therefore I am what does it mean to be human it means that I'm a rational being 
And the church massively bought into that and basically gave away a more holistic understanding of what it means to be human. So if you buy into this idea that we're primarily rational beings, then it makes sense that the journey to becoming would be about retraining your minds, right? So when pastors ask me, and they ask me this all the time, what's the best course for discipleship? We've got six weeks in our church, in our small groups, where we want to nail discipleship. You know, what's the best course out there? There must be something Tim Keller's done. There must be something Pete Gregg's put together. There must be something Danielle Strickland's done. Like, well, what's the best course? And, and it's buying into this mindset that if we give people the right content, right, they will devour the content, consume the content, and be transformed in the process. And it's a truncated view of what it means to be human and therefore it doesn't work. I know people with unbelievable theology, right? But whose character doesn't feel Christ-like at all. You can have brilliant Christology, ecclesiology, all theologies. You can have it all, but that doesn't mean you're going to display the character of Christ in how you go about life. If you read the Gospels, and this is a terrifying thought, who in the Gospel narratives have the highest Christology, the clearest understanding as to the nature of Christ, his calling, his identity? And the answer is the demons. It's the demons that say to Christ, like, we, we know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. It takes the disciples ages. You know, they're doing this stuff. They're praying for the sick. They're, they're involved and they're still trying to figure out, who is he? You know, the demons get it from the get-go. Having the right doctrine, knowing the stuff, doesn't mean that you're going to be formed into the likeness of Christ. Yes, um, training in terms of theological training, um, renewal of the mind, all of that stuff is incredibly important. Like I, I believe this as a teacher, as a preacher, I want to form minds, I want to retrain minds, but we need way more than just an approach that retrains minds. So I want to take you back before the Enlightenment era to a more ancient understanding of character formation. I'm taking you back really to some Greek philosophers and then later to a guy called Augustine, a North African bishop in the church. Um, and he basically said, yes, yes, we're thinking beings, we're rational beings, but at the core of who we are, we're desiring beings. And, and we move in the direction of our desires. We might believe certain things about the good life, right? But it's our desires that will guide us. And what we need isn't just theological formation. We need some level of formation that retrains our desires, not our beliefs, that moves the compass of our desires towards the kingdom. That's what's going to help us become more Christ-like in character. An example of this would be Apple. Who's got an iPhone? Just hand in the air if you've got an iPhone. Hand in the air if you've got a Samsung. We'd love to pray for you at the end if that's the case. That's such a shame. You're still welcome here. There's grace for that. Um, but if you've noticed advertising of Apple products, they, they never tell you what's so great about their products. Processing speeds, like what's beneath the surface. They never tell you about the science behind it, the technology. My nerds, Nerd friends tell me that actually other phones are technologically more advanced, right? Or have processing speeds that are better. 
What, what Apple do is they don't go after your mind, they go after your desires. They sell you something that you're like, I want that. My life would be better with that new phone. Like that new iPad will make me whole, right? They basically grab your desires and point your desires in a certain direction and you move in the direction of your desires, right? This is why advertising is so powerful. This is why your journey on the bus, on the train, wherever you go, even walking through a city, you're being bombarded. They're not going after your mind. They're going after your heart, your desires. And if they access your desires, you'll move in the direction of your desires. The problem is the world understands something that the church has forgotten. Right, so the church is trying to engage with thinking, with minds, with theological ideas. And what we need to do is, yes, that, but we need to go after desires at a very gut level. We need the Spirit of God to access these desires, to move them into the direction of the Kingdom of God. And then we will move in the direction of our desires towards the Kingdom of God. So, Aristotle one of the Greek philosophers, he said this is really the process of becoming, the process of formation. Two parts, imitation and practice. Imitation and practice. Remember, Jesus says, like, imitate me, watch how I do it. That's imitation. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like, watch how I go about following the way of Jesus. This is how we learn to do pretty much everything. You learn to walk by watching mum and dad and other figures in your life. Oh, look at that. One step in front of the other. Brilliant. Give that a go. And you tried it and you failed and you tried again and you failed and you kept doing it until it became second nature. Do you think about walking across the room? No, you don't. You just do it. Same with driving. Do you remember learning how to drive? Right, it's so mechanical at first, isn't it? Like, you're like, oh, what mirrors, like gear, that's awkward. Ah, keep looking at the road as well. You know, and it, you're constantly thinking. And now when you've been doing it for a while, it's like, don't even look at the mirrors. You know, just sort of like m- moving around, get out of the way, you know, and you're moving through the city. I, I mean, I've driven places where at the end of the journey, of like, I can't even remember driving here. Like, I was just in autopilot, right? Because you've imitated and you've practised, practised, practised until something comes second nature to you. This is how we develop language, right? As a kid, you're listening, you're observing in your surroundings and then you get cocky. I'm going to try and impress mum and dad. Dada. And dad goes nuts. And you're like, if I want to impress dad, I'll just try dada again. And then mama. And then you begin to develop language. You imitate and you practice, 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 right? So the questions when it comes to discipleship is who are you imitating right now? Who are you most imitating? And are you willing to do the hard work of practice, practice, practice? When Jesus says, watch how I do it, He's basically saying, I want you to observe the rhythms of how I pray and retreat to be with God and my rhythms of engaging with people and demonstrating compassion and my rhythms of fasting and my rhythms of praying for the sick and my rhythms of ascending the mountain for moments of encounter and my rhythms of coming back down the mountain. Like, observe, watch how I do it. Who are you observing? Um, 
And are you willing to practice, practice, practice? And if you do, if you choose the right person to imitate and you're willing to do the hard work of practice, things that weren't natural to you will become second nature to you. So this is how Aristotle explained it. You have a first nature. Um, In theological terms, we might call that the sort of like the sinful nature, right? But if we develop what Jesus described as these unforced rhythms of grace, things that were unnatural to us will become natural to us. They will become second nature to us. I'll give you some examples, really easy ones. Financial giving, giving to your local church, right? It feels like death in my experience. Um, But it's the kind of death that leads to resurrection life, both in your own life and in your local church. So there's a death to self that leads to resurrection life. But how do you become a generous person? In my experience, a lot of people want to become that spontaneously generous person that just can't help but be generous. The answer is, if you want to become a spontaneously generous person, you need to start by being very premeditated about your giving. You need to say like, okay, I want to become a more generous person. I want it to be spontaneous. I want it to become second nature to me. But to begin with, I need to be really, you know, premeditated about it. So I'm going to give once a month to the local church. And maybe once a term, I'm just going to sit down with my bank balance and just pray, Lord, is there anything you want me to invest in? Any individual, any cause, any charity that you just want me to go above and beyond giving to the local church? In other words... It feels quite mechanical, but if you keep practising, 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 these things become second nature to you. Living in a city like London, and many of you will relate to this, um, if you live in a city context, is that you see so much need around you. You know, walking to university, walking to your workplace, that you're going to pass poverty, and it's going to be all around you. Homelessness, right, drug addictions, people in desperate need. And when that is normal for you, you become desensitised to it, right? The, the, the kind of like currents of city life will desensitise you to poverty because it becomes super familiar. So how do you develop a practice that enables you to become more compassionate, not less compassionate? If you meet people in London, they'll often say, after five years in the city, I care less. Like I'm just less compassionate. I'm not as kind as I used to be, right? So you need practices that you do again and again and again to observe and be attentive to the poverty, the brokenness around you so that your heart is moved by the stuff that moves the heart of God. Unforced rhythms of grace. You imitate, you practice, practice, practice. And over time, you take on the nature of Christ. So John Mark Comer puts it like this. If you want to experience the life of the kingdom, which we do, I think, don't we? As Two people do that. It's great. Um, That's encouraging. So if you want to experience the life of the kingdom, John Mark Comer says, you need to adopt the lifestyle of the kingdom. Right? If you want to experience the life of the kingdom, you need to adopt the lifestyle of the kingdom. It seems to me a lot of people want the life of the kingdom, the signs, the wonders, like those amazing mountaintop experiences like it caused to live for. They want the life. But the lifestyle feels like an inconvenience. Holiness feels like an inconvenience. Purity feels like an inconvenience, right? Right? 
But if you want the life, after a while you'll realize, do you know what? I need to follow the way of Jesus. Like it's the way of Jesus that leads to the life of Jesus. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus. There's a journey of character formation where you develop spiritual practice. And we might talk a little bit about some of those practices later, like Sabbath, like fasting, scripture memorization, contemplative prayer, being still in the presence of God, solitude, retreating, um, the list goes on. Thirdly then, doing the stuff that Jesus did. Doing the stuff that Jesus did. So listen to this text, Matthew 14. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Let me just explain what's going on. Now, Peter knows um, how discipleship happens in the context of Jesus, but more than that, in the context of the first century, where you'd have a rabbi and the rabbi would train up the students um, in three areas. To be with the rabbi, to become like the rabbi, but ultimately to be equipped to do what the rabbi did, right? So Peter knows that trajectory. You've called us to be with you. You've shown us your life and these unforced rhythms of grace, but you're essentially raising us up to do the stuff that you're doing. So basically when Jesus walks out on the water and reveals that it's him, Peter's like, if it truly is you, if you're the rabbi um, and we're the students and you're training us up to do the stuff that you're doing, you're walking on water. So you should be training us to walk on water. Um, And Jesus, I think in a moment of pride, basically says to Peter like, yes, you get it. This whole discipleship journey has been training you up to do what I'm doing. I'm walking on water. You can do it. Come to me on the boat, right? So Peter steps out of the boat. The other disciples were probably freaking out. But it's like, this is what you're training us up for. And he begins to walk on water. Now, if you've heard this text preach in your local church, I can almost guarantee the emphasis was, Peter took his eyes off Jesus. What an idiot. And when you take your eyes off Jesus, the storms in your life will overwhelm you. Faith levels will begin to diminish. When you take your eyes off Jesus, you begin to sink. Let that be a lesson to you. Um, It will be something like that, right? The incredible bit in the story, the bit that should grab our attention is that Peter walked on water. Yes, Jesus was walking on water, but he was training the disciples to do all the stuff that he was doing to the point where Peter was walking on water. How incredible is that? Jesus wants to train you up to fully participate in his ministry. So when we read the Gospels and all the things that Jesus was doing as a human being empowered by the Spirit, He wants to raise you up to do all of those things as a human being empowered by the Spirit of God. Three components. Be with Jesus. That's time in His presence. Proximity is key. Becoming like Jesus. Character formation. Spiritual practices, not just theological content that we consume, but but theological practices that take our desires 
and move them in the direction of the kingdom of God and finally being raised up to do the stuff that Jesus did. So I want to present what I believe the church needs right now, which is like a new model for discipleship. And when I say a new model, it's a really old model, trying to go back to the early centuries, how Jesus discipled um, his followers, how the early church went about discipling new followers of Jesus. So here's my four uh, four thoughts. Discipleship has a shape and discipleship has a setting. Discipleship needs a soil and discipleship needs a structure. Firstly then, discipleship has a shape. Um, And this is the, the shape. There's a descent and there's an ascent, right? We long and really celebrate inviting people into the life of the kingdom, right? But Jesus says, if you want the life of the kingdom, firstly, you need to die. Like if you want to follow me, bless you, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross annually. He doesn't say that, by the way. Take up your cross daily, right, and follow me. So if you want to experience the life of the kingdom, it it starts by dying to self. There's a descent, an emptying that leads to an infilling. Um, So this is an example. This is um, a hymn from the first century that Paul quotes They would have probably sung this, but I'm not going to sing it over you. Just going to read it. And you'll notice that basically this is the story of the incarnation, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But you'll notice these two movements, the descent, the emptying, and then the ascent, the filling. So Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Greek word, kenosis, literally means to empty yourself. You know, I said, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul, in the same letter, I think a chapter later, says to the church in Philippi, I've poured myself out to you like a drink offering. Like I've emptied myself. I've given everything for you. Like this is the the emptying, the descent. So Rather, he made himself nothing, kenosis, by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a, death, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, that's the descent. And because of that, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. This exaltation is a reference to the ascension, but also resurrection. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when you read writers on the subject of spiritual formation, throughout the centuries, they'll always emphasise these two aspects of formation. Basically dying and living, emptying and filling, withdrawing and engaging. Like we want the sort of second half of the story, but we need to call people towards the death of self so that we can live the resurrection life of Jesus. So discipleship has a shape. And it's worth thinking, like in what areas of my life do I need to die? So some some of these disciplines are, are really about death, fasting. Fasting feels like death to me. I enjoy fasting in between meals, but actually fasting the meals as well, that sometimes is incredibly challenging. Um, Part of me is dying. Do you know what part of me is dying? The bit that needs to experience satisfaction as soon as there's a moment of hunger. If there's a scratch, I must itch it. If there's a hunger, it must be satisfied. 
right? So when I fast, in my body, I experience a pushback. Just because I have certain desires, it doesn't mean that that needs to be satisfied. And it doesn't mean that it has to be satisfied now. So when I'm fasting in my body, there's an act of warfare that I'm saying no to some of my desires. For more, for more, now, now. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that says, I want to die to that way of living, which is me, me, me. Right? If you idolise productivity, do you know what will feel like death to you? A retreat day. Once a month, I go on retreat. Um, I don't take emails, my laptop. I basically take a notebook, a Bible, and I spend a day walking around this garden in East London. It's a kind of old monastic site. Um, and I just pray. And honestly, the retreat day, at least when I started doing it, I've been doing it for like a decade, once a month for a decade. When I started doing it, it felt like death. Part of me was dying, you know, part of me that was dying was the part that I defined myself as how productive I was in any given moment. And a lot of us buy into this. When you say to a friend, how are you doing? What's the standard answer? Really busy. You have no idea how busy I am because you have no idea how important I am. I'm incredibly busy and busy all the time. And when people are asked, like, how was your day? You're like, do you know what? Productive day. Smash my to-do list today. Productive day. Or I've had a really rough day. Just haven't really done anything. Have you noticed how much we idolise productivity? Now, if you idolise productivity, a day of rest, which is meant to be weekly in terms of Sabbath, like if you want to be productive in the kingdom of God, be intentionally unproductive for a day. Like Jesus said, if you want to be really fruitful, if you want to be really productive, he says, rest and abide in the vine. If you want to get lots done, do nothing for a day and prioritise the presence of God, right? So these patterns are like, they, they feel like death because part of us is dying and that's a part of us that needs to die so that we can experience resurrection life. Um, and then you'll notice, oh, there is it, where is it? There it is. The ascent is about the infilling. So some of the, the disciplines are about saying no to the self, to these desires that get misdirected, saying yes to the things of God. So the filling, that might be devouring scripture, time in prayer, practices of engagement. We need to do both the descent and the ascent. Secondly then, discipleship has a setting. So Joseph Myers wrote a book called The Search to Belong or The Search for Belonging or something like that. In the book, he basically says, as human beings, we experience belonging um, in different experiences and in different contexts. He says there's four main spaces, spheres, where we need to experience belonging. So he says, number one, there's a public space. We all long for moments where we're in a crowd and we're united behind a cause. Anyone excited about the World Cup? Wow, really tough crowd again. I, I could not be more excited about the World Cup. I know I will find myself in pubs, cheering on England, kissing people I don't know when England score, because there's a sense of we're in this together. Football's coming home. Can I hear an amen? amen. There's, there's not enough faith in the room. Um, okay, so it's like, 
there's this sense of we need to be in moments where we're part of a crowd united behind a cause. Like that experience, whether it be a Coldplay gig, a football stadium, whatever it might be, is a powerful space for belonging. But on its own, it's not enough. On its own, it's not enough. She says there's another space that we need, which is a social space. We need to be part of groups where there's like 12 to 20. Now this, for many of us, this might be your workplace. Or if you're in a block of flats, maybe some of the relationships you have with housemates and other things. Um, It's obviously a pretty big flat if there's 12 to 20. But anyway, um, it's a space where in the big crowd, you share a cause, but you probably don't even know the names of people around you. You might not know how they're doing. Are they doing well in life or are they really struggling in life? Are they enjoying their job or does their job suck right now? Are they experiencing grief? You know, what's going on? In the social space, like you probably know their names and you probably know what they do for a living. You know a chunk about them, right? So it's, it's powerful being in that kind of space. But again, that space is not enough. So you move to the personal space, which is like two to five. These are your closest friends, right? And your closest friends obviously know you by name. Um, they often know how you're doing before you know how you're doing, right? They know where you're experiencing like breakthroughs and they know where you, when you're on the edge of a breakdown. Like they know you. There's real intimacy in that space in a way that wouldn't be present in the crowd and a way that wouldn't be present in the social space. And then there's the intimate space, the one-on-one, which is potentially a spouse or a, you know, mother-daughter or or whatever relationship. Like this is your person and it's the most beautiful place for belonging. Absolutely stunning. And he basically goes on to say, well, he doesn't say this bit, um, but you can see this mapped out in the ministry of Jesus. You've got Jesus with the crowds a lot. Have you noticed that? It's like teaching the crowds a lot. But then he'll often say to the 12, look, come away. Can I just explain that parable? Can I explain what was going on there? So he, he goes away with the 12. But if you notice, Peter, James and John, he often just takes away the three. It's the three that are with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the three that are present in these moments of incredible intimacy. And it's those three particularly that become deep foundations on which the early church was established. And then you've got Jesus constantly retreating from the crowds to go up the mountain to be with the Father. Constantly retreating to be with the Father. Jesus recognised the power of these different spheres of belonging. Now, in the local church, we do Sunday services pretty well, don't we? There can be often an overemphasis on the discipleship that takes place in the gathered context. I think the gathered context like this, incredibly powerful, but on its own, totally insufficient. And we've relied too heavily on it. And I think we learned that during lockdown, right? When you took away the, the gathered space, it's like, oh my gosh, what are we left with? Have we been establishing communities where people can practice the way of Jesus together? So we, we're doing pretty well when it comes to Sunday services. I think in the vineyard movement, there's always been an incredible emphasis on small groups, um, like gathering in someone's home, glass of wine or soft drink um, and a bit of food, some nibbles normally, um, and open up the scriptures and pray for one another, right? Vineyard's very strong in that. I think in the church, particularly um, in my upbringing, very strong emphasis on the intimate place of like a one-on-one relationship with God, quiet times, 
like retreating to have your moment with Scripture. But honestly, that personal space, that group of like three or four or five incredibly close friends, I think that space is the most incredible space for discipleship and more often than not, not utilised. Right, so if I think of some of my closest friends, my two best mates are probably my brother Tim, my brother Steve, and I just love being with them. But honestly, there's moments where I'm going through some like really challenging things and I don't utilise the gift of that friendship to actually process my internal world with them and allow them to speak into it. I'm like, Lord, you've blessed me with these brothers, but you've blessed me with some incredible friends, but I'm not sure I'm using these incredible gifts for my own spiritual formation or for their spiritual formation. The iron sharpens iron thing. I'm not sure that's happening in some of these contexts. So if you were to say, who are your closest friends, three or four best friends, how often in the context of that friendship do you share not just how you're doing, but spiritually where you're encountering God or where you're encountering temptation or what spiritual disciplines are life-giving or what spiritual disciplines can you just not master? It feels like a dogfight. Are we using that space for spiritual formation? Because it feels like to me as I read through the Gospels, the relationship with Peter, James and John for Jesus was critical to how he went about raising up leaders and spiritual formation. Thirdly then, discipleship needs a soil. So there's a question in Genesis 4. The question is, am I my brother's keeper? Um, the answer is yes, by the way. Just to break that to you. Am I my brother's keeper? The question really is, is the spiritual formation of the person next to you your responsibility? And the answer is yes, it is. And your spiritual formation is their responsibility. But again, we haven't embraced this in the church. So I find myself in discipleship conversations with some of our church, some of our leaders often. And if I was to highlight a few patterns that I'd observed, for example, hey, I've noticed in public, you put down your wife a lot. And I just want to ask why you do that, because I can see she sometimes diminishes when you speak to her like that. And the pushback will be, how I treat my wife is none of your business. My discipleship journey, none of your business. Or, hey, I've noticed that God's blessed you with significant resource, but you seem to spend pretty much all of that resource on project self. Like It seems to all be about you. Can I just ask you about that? I'm just intrigued. Hey, how I spend my money, that, none of your business, right? And you can see this play out in many different areas of life. And you're like, wow, this is terrifying, the answer of a generation when it comes to spiritual formation, am I my brother's keeper? Is like, no, I'll look after me, you look after you, let's crack on. And the spirit of both the Old and New Testaments is like, no, we're a family. Your spiritual journey, journey into the likeness of Christ is my responsibility and my, responsi- my journey is your responsibility like we're to function as family. So question about how we treat one another and how we use our resource and, and, and what we're doing with our desires. We should be allowed to ask each other these questions. If you want a cult of discipleship where people thrive and spiritually come to life, something needs to change. It takes a village to raise a disciple. You can't do it on your own. God has blessed you, gifted you with community because you were never to make it alone. 
Fourthly then, discipleship needs some sort of structure. And by that I mean some sort of intentionality. It won't just happen by accident. So can I just share what we're doing at KXC, a resource that we've developed, we're using. I'm not trying to sell a resource to you. Like I'm just saying this is what we're doing um, and you might have some little ideas of what it might look like in your context because I think some of the ingredients are important. So we call it pattern, restoring patterns of renewal. Um, the, the, the sort of central idea behind it is the patterns of our lives form the desires of our lives which shape the directions of our lives. Right, so this goes back to Augustine's idea that basically it's habits, it's things you do again and again and again that that move your desires and point them towards the kingdom. So misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. Misdirected loves, desires, pointing in the wrong direction will lead to misdirected lives. Um, So the patterns of our lives form the desires of our lives which shape the direction of our lives. So we take people through a journey. This is in groups of threes and four. So we have gathered church, we've got small groups, we're trying to equip people to have a devotional life with God, but this is like the the fourth space. So in groups of threes and fours, they go through a journey. Story, vision, pattern, content. So story, they basically share their story of how they became the person they are today, right? Now hopefully you do these groups of threes and fours with friends where you feel, incredibly safe but it still requires vulnerability so you basically develop a timeline that might look something like this Um, the beginning of the timeline is birth um, to now and you go through above the line positive formational experiences below the line negative formational experiences Um, the lower it goes the more painful it was the higher it goes um, the bigger the breakthrough or the celebration right and as people begin to map out their journey they're sharing how they've been formed through life And when you listen to someone's journey through life, it might take a couple of hours per person, it feels like holy ground. So people come to these evenings and they've literally drawn out a timeline. And this is is tragic, but rarely in life do we sit down and honour someone and say, do you know what, you've got two or three hours of my time, tell me your whole story. All I want to do is listen. Listening to someone's story is one of the most effective ways of loving someone, right? So people begin to share their story. And as you listen to someone's story, you begin to identify calling. Oh, God did this. And then he did that. And it feels like he's been working in this area of your life. Hang on a minute. Have you ever thought about dot, dot, dot? It feels like there's a a call on your life that's becoming present in the story. Or hey, I'm aware that there's a certain lie, a certain wound that's come up again and again in your story. It feels like the enemy's really tried to rob you of dot, dot, dot. Can we just pause and can we just pray into this for a moment? It's like, this is something that's repeating itself in your story. Can we just like break the lies of the evil one? Can we just like dethrone this idol that seems to be present? Like this is one of the most powerful things to do with some friends, listening and praying through one another's story. It creates incredible intimacy. These pattern groups tend to stay together for a long time because they really know one another. They know the wounds that each other has carried. So story, then vision, which is like, this is what I feel called to. Like, this is the trajectory I'm going after. Like, just naming some sense of direction. And often it will come up in the journey. Do you know what? I'm not sure I'm living with any direction. 
It's like, okay, well, let's just pray into that. But others are like, oh no, I know what I'm going after. Um, begin to share, um, which again is a vulnerable thing to do, to, to share your dreams with other people, right? Because the biggest fear is that someone will say, you can never do that. Whew, that's cocky. You, you, you back yourself to do that. All the best. Um, but when you share your dreams and someone says, do you know what, that's amazing. I'm going to pray for that. Let's contend for that. It's incredibly powerful. Story, vision. Um, then pattern, the making and breaking of habits. Um, this is the moment where we basically say, if this is the direction, this is what you're going after, what habits are going to be critical in this journey? Let's say part of your vision is, I want to become incredibly generous in this season. It might be like, okay, great. Well, what we're going to need right now is a pattern around giving, a practice of giving. Or do you know what? I've realised what I, I, my vision for this season is that I want to learn how to rest well because I, I constantly feel exhausted. I've idolised productivity. I want to learn how to rest. It's like brilliant. Well, should we just like create a habit that we practice together in community where like we're going to take the Sabbath seriously and, and whatever day we choose, we're going to WhatsApp one another. How are you doing? Like, don't check your emails. You know, what are you doing to replenish your innermost being? What patterns are going to help us move in the direction we believe God is calling us? So what ends up happening is in these threes and fours, they develop a rule of life where on a certain day, we're going to fast together. Or on a certain day, we're going to Sabbath together. We might be doing some similar devotional material in the morning. And through the WhatsApp, we're just checking in with one another. Um, and the point is that what we're ultimately doing is contending in prayer, right? Where the spiritual well-being of um, those in your pattern group becomes like part of your own journey. So I'm in a pattern group with three young entrepreneurs um, and every time I meet them, I just absolutely love it and I'll go away from th those moments and be like, oh Lord, I love what you're doing in this person's life and Lord, that breakthrough that they're longing for, would you bring it about? I start contending for what God is doing in their life. Four simple steps, story, vision, pattern, contend. Um, and as we do this, these simple sort of exercises for spiritual formation, if you imitate the right people, you practice, 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 you realise realize over time that you become a certain type of person. And if ultimately you've been imitating Jesus and imitating the practices um, of the, or practising the practices of the New Testament, ultimately you're becoming more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, we begin to change the world. Amen.